It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 28, the XYZ Affair, a diplomatic incident that sparked a quasi-war between the U.S. and France. In July of 1797, John Marshall sat quietly in his cabin aboard the Grace, a sleek, two-masted American ship. At that point, he was just a lawyer from Virginia, tasked with a critical mission, serving as a secret U.S. envoy to France. To get there, though, he had to endure a six-week transatlantic voyage. The closer he got to Europe, the harder it was to distract himself from the peril that could lay ahead. Marshall began to wonder if he should have refused the mission. Back home in Richmond were his pregnant wife, his legal practice, and his three children. Ahead in France was an unstable, warlike government that might very well throw him in jail the moment he arrived. Revolutionary France was at war with Europe. To fund that effort, French privateers had developed a nasty habit of capturing American vessels, seizing their goods, and imprisoning their sailors. And if the English found out that the Americans were sending an envoy to France, the powerful British Navy could be sent to capture Marshall's ship instead. Even if the journey went well, John Marshall knew his mission might be impossible. But he couldn't fathom just how hostile the reception he received in Paris would be, or how his time in France would lead to a diplomatic crisis and an undeclared war at sea. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. To set the scene for the XYZ affair, you first got to know a little bit about the relationship between the U.S. and France in the 1790s. Today, we're used to other countries seeing the United States as a military behemoth. But in those days, America was a mere upstart nation. The colonists had won independence, but that didn't guarantee Europe's respect. During the American Revolutionary War in 1778, France signed an alliance treaty with the colonists. The French sent troops, money, and ships to aid the Continental Army. 
Many historians say France's support was the deciding factor that repelled Britain and won the war. However, the French Navy sailed home to a country deeply indebted as a result of the war effort. King Louis XVI raised taxes to pay down the national debt. In response, his subjects overthrew the monarchy and executed him. After seizing power, the leaders of the revolution aimed to build a secular republic where all people were entitled to certain basic civil rights. The British monarchy feared France's lofty ideals might inspire their own citizens, which is exactly what the French revolutionaries intended to do. This high-stakes disagreement escalated and war broke out in Europe. Several of them, in fact, now known collectively as the French Revolutionary Wars. In America, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson and his Republican Party, now referred to as the Democratic Republican Party, wanted to support the French revolutionaries against the British, the same way France had done for them. But President George Washington and his Federalists decided to stay neutral. Although France and the U.S. had signed a treaty to support each other, Washington believed that they had agreed to an alliance with the King of France. Because France had killed their king, he considered the treaty null and void. France vehemently disagreed. The king didn't sail to North America to help the colonists gain independence, and it wasn't the king who would have to pay off France's war debts. The French people had upheld their end of the deal. Now they wanted Americans to do the same. Washington was unbudging. In fact, in 1794, he signed the Jay Treaty, an agreement with the King of England. Among the many concessions, it allowed England to seize any French goods found on American ships. Authored by Alexander Hamilton and negotiated by John Jay, the treaty was immensely unpopular. Siding with the British over the French, barely a decade after the Revolutionary War ended, was a controversial choice indeed. The name John Jay became a dirty word among Jeffersonians especially, who burned him in effigy at mass demonstrations. The only people angrier about the Jay Treaty than the Americans were the French. Suddenly, American merchant vessels sailing to Britain were surrounded by French privateers. The goods on board were seized. As for the sailors, they became French prisoners. France then announced it planned to execute any American found on a British naval vessel. In those days, any number of reasons, from debt to enslavement, could force an American to be conscripted into the British Navy. Still, the French considered these sailors to be guilty of treason under the old 1778 treaty. By 1796, France and the U.S. pretty much hated each other's guts. France had plenty of problems on the home front, too. The people were getting weary of their new leaders. The high-minded promises of the revolution were replaced by a parliament that seemed ineffective. Royalists who wanted to restore the monarchy were gaining ground. The only bright spot for the revolutionaries was the success of Commander Napoleon Bonaparte. Under his leadership, the French army was trampling across the European mainland, winning almost every battle. 
He was well on his way to conquering Italy and looting the equivalent of over $45 million from their coffers, a creative but effective economic stimulus package for France. Meanwhile, the United States was contending with deep political divisions of its own. The 1796 election ended with Federalist John Adams winning the presidency. But Thomas Jefferson, a Republican, was his vice president. Adams favored England, while Jefferson sympathized with France. Remember, originally the runner-up in any presidential election was named vice president. Separate ballots for the vice presidents only began in 1804. Adams and Jefferson were once friends, but their partisan differences made them enemies by the time they took their oaths of office in 1797. Jefferson announced his intention to lead the Republican resistance against Adams rather than working with the president's administration. The only people who hated Adams more than his vice president were the French parliament. France immediately denounced Adams, calling him an Anglophile and monarchist. Undeterred, Adams tried to re-establish diplomatic relations with France. Shortly after his 1797 inauguration, he named South Carolina House of Delegates member Charles Coatsworth Pinckney as the U.S. envoy to France. Once a wealthy planter, Pinckney was now in charge of negotiating with the French government. When the envoy arrived, France's foreign ministry refused to receive him. Not only was Pinckney sent packing, France then recalled Pierre Adet, their minister, to the United States. Recalling ambassadors and expelling diplomats often signals that tensions between countries are running high. One wrong move can lead to war. With Napoleon running roughshod over Italy and Austria, it was far from certain that the U.S. would prevail in a land war with France. So, President Adams vowed to try diplomacy again. Adams and Jefferson were barely speaking, but Jefferson was just about the only American the French still liked. So, Adams decided to try one more time to get his vice president to help. In the spring of 1797, the two men met in secret at the Francis Hotel in Philadelphia. Adams laid out his plan, send a three-person commission to France to negotiate a peace agreement with the French foreign minister, Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord. Adams wanted Jefferson to be one of the three commissioners. Understanding what was at stake, Jefferson agreed at first. But just two days later, he changed his mind. After conferring with his fellow Republican, James Madison, he decided that he couldn't bring himself to help the Federalist Party. He doesn't come off well in this story, but let's not write Jefferson off so fast for this. He believed that Adams was too biased against France to resolve the crisis. Jefferson may well have felt that he was being set up to fail, or worse yet, shipped off to Paris and out of earshot so that the president could prepare to attack France. Regardless, Jefferson was off the commission. Adams needed to find two new men he trusted with the safety of his country and who the Senate would be willing to confirm as U.S. envoys. Two, not three, because Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was already confirmed. After being rejected by the French government, he remained in the Netherlands awaiting further instructions. 
Adams reasoned then, at least one of the three on the commission ought to be a strong Republican like Jefferson with pro-France views. He looked to Elbridge Gerry, an unabashedly Francophile Republican from Massachusetts and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. For the third slot, Adams preferred a Federalist like himself, but someone who wouldn't be too controversial. Not a politician, but a respected man with a known name. To that, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton had a suggestion. John Marshall, a lawyer and former lieutenant in the Continental Army, now serving in Virginia's House of Delegates. He was a cousin to Thomas Jefferson, but they couldn't have been more different, politically or personally. Jefferson was a college man, while Marshall had no formal education. Though his cousin was nimble in Latin, Greek, and French, Marshall was limited to English. No matter, Marshall had all they needed for a potential diplomat, a good nature and moderate public profile. And of course, the endorsements of Washington and Hamilton. Adams appointed him as the third envoy. The commission was set. Pinckney, Jerry, and Marshall. The Senate confirmed all three choices, and Adams began planning their voyage. He hoped they'd return from France with a signed peace agreement. Instead, they were targeted for extortion, and the negotiations spiraled toward an undeclared war. That's up next. Now, back to the story. In 1797, tensions between the U.S. and France were threatening to boil over into war. On July 1st of that year, Virginia House of Delegates member John Marshall met President John Adams and First Lady Abigail Adams at the President's House in Philadelphia. Adams would later be the first president to reside at the White House, but for now he lived on Market Street in a mansion once occupied by Benedict Arnold. They dined together while discussing Marshall's role in the three-man negotiating party headed to Paris. He would be expected to broker a peace deal that would both stop the French from seizing American ships and reopen trade between the two countries. The United States also wanted France to formally apologize and pay compensation for some 300 ships already taken. Marshall must have known it would be a hard sell. In the days between his meeting with the president and his departure for France, he wrote his wife Polly, indicating that he was sick to death of Philadelphia. Luckily, he'd be leaving soon. On July 15th, the Secretary of State, Timothy Pickering, provided him with specific negotiating instructions. France should stop seizing ships, apologize, and pay compensation. The American envoy to France, Charles Pinckney, was already awaiting Marshall in the Netherlands. The delegation's third member, Elbridge Gerry, planned to sail from Boston a few weeks later. Marshall's six-week journey to the port of Amsterdam was mostly peaceful. The ship was stopped by the British Navy three times and searched for contraband, but the British had no idea Marshall himself was the prize they sought. He wasn't yet a well-known figure on the global stage, so he seemed like a simple traveler. England was, of course, heavily invested in keeping the U.S. neutral. If they'd known Marshall was intending to negotiate with France, they might have arrested him on the spot to stop the U.S. and France from forming an alliance. 
In retrospect, the English needn't have worried. On August 29th, Marshall's ship docked in Amsterdam. For the first time, he met his fellow envoy, Charles Pinckney. The 51-year-old Federalist was born to one of the wealthiest families in South Carolina. His love of Southern cooking showed in his hefty figure and his thick drawl leaked into his French. While waiting for Jerry to arrive, together they studied French politics and pored over every bit of news they could get. Since Marshall didn't speak French, Pinckney's nephew and personal secretary, Henry Rutledge, translated. While the two envoys waited in The Hague, France underwent a shocking new transformation. Napoleon sent one of his top generals, Pierre Augereau, home from the battlefield to lead a coup in Paris. On September 4th, General Augereau invaded the parliamentary government and arrested Napoleon's political opponents. Though he pretended to want a republic, it was pretty clear that Napoleon and his allies had a dictatorship in mind. Newspapers that criticized him were shuttered. The fall elections were canceled, with Augereau handpicking the members of parliament instead. Things in France were changing fast. The envoy's primary target, Foreign Minister Talleyrand, was still at his post, but they couldn't guarantee he'd be there much longer. If they wanted to make a deal with France, they needed to move. Pinckney and Marshall decided to head for Paris without Jerry, who was running behind schedule. On September 27th, the first two envoys arrived in Paris by carriage along with Rutledge. A week later, on October 4th, Jerry joined them. Parisian culture shock hit all three men hard. They complained that everything smelled like either fish or cheese. Drunks came and went from their hotel at all hours. The three men, all married and ranging in age from Jerry's 53 years to Marshall's 42, were overwhelmed. Anxious to get their mission over with and head home, they sent Rutledge to Talleyrand's office to request a private meeting. He didn't keep them waiting long. Talleyrand sent back word that he was willing to meet the envoys at his home on October 8th. With just four days until the meeting, the men debated how they should proceed. Jerry, the Republican and Francophile, advocated for a more pro-French attitude, while the two Federalists announced their intent to draw a hard line. They all studied Talleyrand intently. Talleyrand, the foreign minister, had once been a Catholic bishop. The collar, though, didn't stop him from his share of sinning while he served in the court of Louis XVI. After supporting the revolution, Talleyrand was defrocked and excommunicated. With France still one big powder keg, he decided it was best to leave for a while. Talleyrand moved first to Britain, then to the United States. There he indulged his womanizing ways. He also befriended Alexander Hamilton. Once again, all things on political scandals lead back to Alexander Hamilton. But Talleyrand was a Frenchman at heart. As soon as he received word that there would be a safe harbor and a state job for him, he returned to France. He became foreign minister at the same time Adams ascended to the presidency. Talleyrand's newness to this role stood out to the envoys. It made him seem like a soft target. Outnumbered three to one, they were sure negotiating with him would lead to concessions. 
At 1 p.m. sharp on October 8th, the envoys arrived at Talleyrand's stately residence. They were not admitted. His servants informed them that Talleyrand was busy with the Portuguese ambassador and could see them at 3 p.m. So the envoys killed time and returned at 3 o'clock on the dot. They were finally admitted into the residence, but then told to wait while Talleyrand finished his conversation with the ambassador. Finally, Talleyrand appeared. He briefly reviewed their diplomatic credentials, then informed the envoys he couldn't continue the meeting until he finished a report to the directory. After less than 15 minutes in the foreign minister's presence, the envoys were dismissed to their hotel to await further instructions. It was a disorienting experience. Talleyrand had quickly accepted the request for a meeting, yet seemed intent on disrespecting the envoys in every way possible. It felt like an intentional communication of contempt. In hindsight, the envoys read the whole interaction wrong. Talleyrand was stalling. He needed time to talk the directory into a moderate strategy. At the moment, his superiors in the government favored a hard line against the U.S., believing that President Adams was an enemy of France. But Talleyrand, based on his own experiences with Americans, believed that Adams could be brought around. He hoped his odd behavior would be a hint to the envoys that they should wait patiently. But the three Americans were hot under their collars after being summoned and then sent away. A note from Talleyrand's personal secretary came next. It asked, politely, for an explanation of some recent comments by President Adams that sounded hawkish towards France. Talleyrand hoped for an apology he could take to the directory to argue that Adams wasn't as hostile as he might seem. The envoys balked. They felt it was rude to send a messenger instead of meeting in person. Not only did they refuse to answer the disrespectful communication, they didn't even read it. When the three men ignored that message, Talleyrand decided he had to send an envoy of his own, Jean-Conrad Hotingy, who happened to know John Marshall personally. He was a Dutch banker who'd done Marshall a favor some years before. Hotingy interrupted the envoy's dinner with a slew of demands. If the United States wanted to be assured of safety for its ships, they would need to pay for the privilege. On behalf of Talleyrand, he also insisted on an apology for President Adams' remarks about France. And Hotingy had two more stipulations. The U.S. needed to pay all of France's debts to American nationals and loan France 32 million Dutch guilders, the equivalent of nearly $400 million today. As if that wasn't enough, Hotingi closed with the cherry on top, requesting a bribe to the foreign minister of 50,000 British pounds. To be blunt, bribes were pretty common in those days. Most government positions, even in the U.S., were held by wealthy people and paid no salary. It was tacitly expected in much of Europe that if government functionaries wanted to earn anything from their positions, they had to do so by collecting bribes. Despite the commonality of bribery with European bureaucrats, the mere suggestion was offensive to the envoys. 
They didn't have the authority to spend such a huge sum on behalf of the United States, and they certainly weren't going to write to the president and ask him to authorize a bribe. Irate, John Marshall unleashed a tirade on his banker friend, telling him the U.S. would pay France nothing. The envoys threw Hotingi out and dug in. They wouldn't let it ruin their meal. Of course, as official U.S. envoys, they had to report the progress, or lack thereof, back to President Adams. The men composed a dispatch recounting the bizarre offer. With winter weather roiling the Atlantic Ocean, it would take months to arrive in America by ship. It was meant for the president's eyes only. Marshall never intended it for the public. But soon, every literate person in America would see it, and France would find itself locked in an undeclared war with the USA. That's next. Now back to the story. In October of 1797, the three American envoys, Marshall, Jerry, and Pinckney, debated what to do with the bizarre offer they'd just received. The French foreign minister, Talleyrand, seemed only willing to negotiate through surrogates. And the first official he sent had insulted the delegation by demanding an enormous loan for France and a bribe for its government. And as if dealing with Talleyrand wasn't bad enough, the envoys feared that the constant unrest in France might soon cause him to be replaced. A new foreign minister might be completely unwilling to negotiate or could even expel them from the country. Let's look at both sides of this impasse for a second. From France's perspective, they'd given large loans to the colonists during the American Revolutionary War. The United States paid them back for their kindness by signing a treaty that favored Britain, refusing to aid France in their wars in Europe, and now refusing to extend a loan when France was in need. After all that, it seemed ridiculous to them that they ought to stop the lucrative practice of seizing merchant ships just because the Americans had asked nicely. On the other hand, the United States believed that they had asked for nothing in the Revolutionary War that hadn't also helped the French. England's defeat had weakened the British Navy significantly. Without the Americans, maybe France wouldn't be holding its own against England at sea now. So those old loans were mutually beneficial. France's new demand wasn't. And as far as the mercantile vessels, that was a matter of pride. France had openly stolen goods from American ships that in 2020 would be worth at least $15 million. They should be the ones apologizing and paying compensation. It's easy to see why these two points of view weren't able to reconcile. Both countries felt wronged, and both had real grounds to feel that way. Neither wanted to apologize or to lose face by backing down. Feeling America was in the right, Marshall resigned himself to failure. He wrote to George Washington and shared his despair, calling France radically hostile to American interests. Marshall urged the United States to create a strong navy in case the situation with France turned into a war at sea. He wrote, the Atlantic only can save us. The envoy had traveled to France as messengers of peace. Now, the three men feared that their time abroad would start a war. Shortly after Marshall wrote his letter, 
Talleyrand's surrogate, Mr. Houtengi, returned to the envoy's hotel. He brought with him Pierre Bellamy, a government functionary whose main role was collecting bribes. The choice of Bellamy signaled that Talleyrand was only doubling down on his monetary demands. The French agents began listing off the United States' perceived sins toward France. The Jay Treaty, ongoing trade with Britain, President Adams' warlike speeches. Surely, Houtengi and Bellamy argued, a loan and a bribe were the very least the U.S. could do to make up for all these betrayals. They caught one sympathetic ear. Jerry, the sole Republican present, felt France had indeed been wronged. After Houtengi and Bellamy left, Jerry suggested writing to Talleyrand and telling him they would consider his proposal. This splintering of the trio started an argument. Marshall refused any loans or bribes and was done negotiating with intermediaries. He even threatened to go home to Philadelphia and inform Adams in person about Jerry's betrayal. All three men went to bed feeling hopeless. If three patriotic Americans couldn't even resolve their differences, reaching an agreement with a hostile nation seemed truly impossible. The next day, Pinckney thought it wise to separate Marshall and Jerry so both could cool down. He took Marshall to the French countryside for the day. Back at the Envoy's hotel, Jerry, left unattended, received a visit from Lucienne Otval. This third messenger was carefully selected by Talleyrand because he already knew Jerry. They both lived in Boston and were members of its relatively small and tight-knit wealthy caste. Otval expressed that Talleyrand was still open to negotiations. He hoped the envoys would visit him at home for an informal meeting. This validated what Jerry already believed. Talleyrand was bargaining in good faith. But this would be the final straw that divided the envoys for good. When Marshall and Pinckney returned later that day, Jerry explained what had transpired and suggested they visit Talleyrand. But once again, he was outvoted. Marshall and Pinckney didn't trust the Frenchman enough to meet him at home. They only wanted a formal meeting at the offices of the foreign ministry. Talleyrand continued to refuse them that honor. Marshall again became angry and despondent. On October 22nd, he wrote to Secretary of State Thomas Pickering. He named the three agents who had come in place of Talleyrand. He listed the disagreements that had divided the envoys, and he explained that France seemed focused only on extorting the U.S. for money, not on any kind of mutually beneficial negotiation. On October 27th, Talleyrand sent Houtengi back a third time to demand the Americans respond in writing to his request for a loan and a bribe. This time, he made the threat of war more explicit, saying that it would be more prudent to pay the French than fight them. An explosive argument ensued, during which Pinckney shouted, No, not a sixpence. Houtengi left offended. The negotiations were now in tatters. On November 8th, Marshall again wrote to the Secretary of State with an update on the situation. Talleyrand's three agents were both implying and explicitly threatening war. 
Marshall also included his own speculation that Talleyrand did want to negotiate and that all the saber-rattling was covering up his own lack of authority. It seemed to Marshall that making negotiations contingent on a loan was a tactic to delay their talks. It would take at least six months for the envoys to write to Adams asking him to approve a loan, for the government to review it, and for a response from Adams to reach them. In that time, Talleyrand might be able to gain enough power to negotiate further. In hindsight, we know Marshall was exactly right. Talleyrand wasn't exactly benevolent, but he also didn't want war with the United States. He believed that a settlement could allow both countries to save face, and he thought he deserved a bribe for doing the negotiating. Despite Talleyrand being more even-keeled than he seemed, both sides were still stuck. Marshall and Pinckney made token efforts over the winter to meet with Talleyrand, but they were spurned. While the envoys continued an unsatisfying winter in Paris, Marshall's letters from October 22nd and November 8th were sailing across the harsh Atlantic Ocean. When the dispatches finally got to President Adams on March 4th and March 5th of 1798, he immediately briefed Congress on their contents. It sent a shockwave through the U.S. government. As far as Adams was concerned, the key takeaway was prepare for war. He told Congress it was time to raise an army and a navy to defend against France. Vice President Jefferson cornered the president after his address to Congress and called him insane. In Jefferson's view, not only did France have a right to feel spurned, it was Adams' own hawkish actions that risked war. Jefferson and his party wanted Adams to release the full text of Marshall's letters. They believed that if they could read the whole thing themselves, they would see that France was negotiating in good faith. Adams was the one overreacting. Of course, they had no idea what the letters really said, that France was almost explicitly extorting the U.S. under threat of invasion. Adams certainly didn't mind cooperating because he knew it would only help his own position. So he sent Congress the full dispatches with the French intermediaries' names removed. Houtengui was called X, Bellamy was Y, and Oudval was Z. Hence, the XYZ affair. The reaction was explosive. Even the Republicans were on Adams' side now. The Senate voted to release the dispatches publicly to explain why a war with France was imminent. It was the most terrifying and infuriating story to appear in American newspapers since independence. They'd just shaken off the colonial yoke of Britain. Now, it seemed the U.S. was at risk of becoming a French colony. Across America, anti-French protests were held. Crowds chanted, millions for defense, but not one cent for tribute. Back in France, Pinckney and Marshall gave up on diplomacy and left Paris. Jerry, the Republican and Francophile, stayed in France and kept trying to negotiate, even though President Adams was already preparing for war. Jerry still believed that paying off France was well worth it. It would be cheaper than a war, as he kept reminding his fellow envoys. The other two men strongly disagreed. 
Back on the shores of the United States, anti-French sentiment was at an all-time high. President Adams easily convinced Congress to give him funding for 54 armed ships. He also tripled the size of the standing army to a total of 10,000 men. Congress even pre-authorized a fighting force of 50,000 if a declaration of war was made. But that declaration never came. Instead, Adams simply sent his 54 armed ships, the precursor to the U.S. Navy, to defend American mercantile vessels from the French. What followed is remembered as an undeclared war called the Quasi-War, conducted entirely at sea. From 1798 to 1800, the U.S. seized 93 French privateers' vessels while losing just one American ship. It was a rousing success for the young nation and forced France back to the negotiating table in 1800 to sign the Treaty of Mortefontaine. Finally, the hostilities ended. France had made one serious miscalculation in threatening the U.S. It failed to realize that Napoleon's desire to conquer Europe would distract him from the looming conflict at sea. He wanted the glory of an emperor, not an admiral. Strangely for a political scandal, the XYZ affair ultimately helped the president. Adams became popular even among Republicans for his aggressive response to France. The success of the Quasi-War helped him cast himself as a strong commander-in-chief in his re-election campaign, although ultimately he lost. American politicians using the fear of war to shore up their own campaigns is nothing new. The metaphor, don't change horses midstream, is brought up routinely to warn against voting out an incumbent president during wartime. Of course, that slogan is typically used by the politician who rode the metaphorical horse into the middle of a stream in the first place. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with scandal number 27 about a brutal beating that happened on the U.S. Senate floor. Among the many sources we used in researching this story, the book Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times by Joel Richard Paul was particularly useful. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Yelena War with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard.